Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We wanted to let you know that Olin's first book, What to Do with Worry, is now available on Audible. You can also purchase physical copies where Christian books are sold. Now, here's Olin. Really tonight, tomorrow morning, and then if you're at church on Sunday morning, it's really a series on pride. And the idea really of pride in the life of Christian leaders, and we're going to do that looking at 1 Samuel, and we're going to start off tonight looking at Saul. So let me just give a very layman's definition of pride. It would just be thinking too highly of yourself. Thinking uh, of yourself is more important than you actually are. And really, in a sense, what we're going to do tonight is look at the anatomy of pride. How does pride start? What are the deepest roots of pride? And then how does it begin to grow and flourish in our lives? So, if you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Samuel chapter 13. 1 Samuel 13. And we're going to start there. 1 Samuel 13, and we will pick up in verse 5. Saul has already been made king of Israel. The, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Essentially the church. The people of God in the Old Testament. 1 Samuel chapter... Is there an echo? Am I the only one here now? Alright. This is fun. Alright. Uh, would it be better if I didn't use the mic? And you, can you hear me in the back, Matt? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, let's do that. No mic. All right. So at some point if I start yelling, it's not because I'm angry, right? I'm just trying to project my voice, so don't take it personal. All right. First Samuel chapter 5, and let's start, excuse me, chapter 13, starting verse 5. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of beth When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. And Saul was at, still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. Now, Saul was the first king of Israel, and if you go back and look when he was first anointed to be king, the main thing that he was supposed to do as king was to organize the nation of Israel, gather them together, all the tribes, to defeat their major enemy, the Philistines. And so they're getting ready to go into battle, but they're waiting The Philistines are mightier than them, larger in number. They had better weapons. They probably even had chariots at times. And Israel this time did not have horses and chariots in their military. Many of the men are getting scared and they're starting to run away. They're kind of like, man, I don't want to do this battle anymore. How many of you have seen the movie Braveheart? I don't know if you're allowed to be on a men's retreat in the United States of America if you've never been seen Braveheart. All right, If you haven't, you need to do that tomorrow after you get home. But do you remember one of the times where the Scottish peasants go out with their pitchforks or whatever they had to fight this great British army. And as all the troops and all the cavalry and all their army is coming up, a lot of the Scottish people say, I'm not dying. And they start to flee. That's a little bit of the scene that you get here in ancient Israel. Now look at verse 9. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. Now, we're going to see more about this later. But if you go back and look, there's this pattern that Samuel had said, I'm the prophet. I'll pray for the army before you go into battle for God's blessing. And part of what I'll do in that prayer is I'll offer a sacrifice. But Samuel has not come yet. 
It's like, hey, wait seven days. It's the seventh day, the midnight hour, and the army is starting to flee. And Saul starts to panic. And he's going to take matters into his own hands. He's going to do something sinful. This is a quote by Martin Lloyd-Jones. Listen to this. Very important. If you can improve your circumstances by fair and legitimate means, do so. And if you cannot, if you have to remain in a trying and difficult position, do not be mastered by it. Do not let it get you down. Do not let it control you. Do not let it determine your misery or your joy. Do you understand what he's saying there? If you're in some hard circumstance... And there's a legitimate way for you to get out of that hard circumstance. Let's say that you're working in a job and you don't like the job and you don't like your boss and you feel like there's unethical situations and you're losing salary and you hate it and there's a legitimate way for you to quit and go have a new job, then you should do that, right? But let's say you signed up to be in the military and you've got a four-year contract and after a while you're like, I don't like waking up early and running and doing push-ups. So it's like, I just quit. Well, you can't. I mean, you, you, you signed in blood, so to speak. Sometimes, even when situations are hard and pressing, you have to stick. But pride, this has been one of the major things that I've learned about pride in my own life and other people's lives over the years. Pride actually starts in a place of doubt, in a place of fear, in a place of worry, in a place of anxiety, in a sense of God is not taking care of me. So if he's not going to protect, if he's not going to provide, I have to rise up. I have to protect. I have to provide for myself. Does that make sense? And that's exactly what we see Saul doing here. One commentator said it this way. Pride starts in anxious uncertainty. Another commentator said it this way. And this is what he calls the anatomy of sin. And he has three. I would call these more the roots of sin. But it's the same idea. The first is this. The tyranny of the urgent. The encroaching pressure from surrounding circumstances. Now, that's not sin. That's just normal life, right? You get a wife, you get a job, you get a couple of kids, and it's like the tyranny of the urgent. Circumstances will be bearing down. There will be times and seasons where you feel like, I have more to do than I can legitimately do with the resources and capacity that I have. Welcome to normal life. Okay? But the second step is where you start to get into sin. A sense of insecurity and self-doubt that arises from a lack of total reliance on God. That's where sin starts. I feel insecure. I'm starting to doubt myself. Why? Because I'm depending on myself. And I'm not up to the task. I'm not depending on God. And then three, rebellion. A human attempt to take matters into our own hands, usurping God. So, so what's the solution? I'll go ahead and skip and give you the punchline. Trust God even when it feels like, when it seems like, when it looks like, maybe when it actually is, all of your resources in life are just running away from you. Talk to a good friend on the phone today that just moved to a new city for a new job, and he kind of made a risky move. He was in conversations with this other place of employment, and they're like, everything's looking great. looks like we're going to be able to hire you. But because of his kid's schooling, he said, we're going to go ahead and move before the deal was closed. Guess what? Got there, got the kids enrolled, got a house, got everything. And they're like, yeah, it's not going to work out. Now they have a job. That, that's a reason to panic, right? What do you do? How do you respond in those type of situations? Listen, maybe the greatest example in the Bible is Adam and Eve. They're in the Garden of Paradise. In some sense, they lack nothing. They have this intimate fellowship with God. 
But think about what Satan came and essentially said. He said, no, no, there is actually this one thing that God has that He's not letting you have, and it's the best thing. And the thought, at some level, goes to their mind, well, God's not giving us all the best stuff in life. And if we want the best stuff in life, we might have to break a couple of rules to get there. You ever felt that in your life? When the pressure comes on, there's the temptation, rise up and break a rule or two if that's what i got to do to make ends meet. Now, prideful people are often ambitious and they want to do something with their life. That's not bad. It's not bad. It's not, there's a good type of ambition for men to say, I want to do something meaningful with my life. I want to have purpose. I want to have significance. I want to have impact. That's a good thing. It's bad when you let that lead you into sin because of impatience and you feel like you have to force something to happen. And in a sense, you get ahead of God. I'm not willing to wait. And you force something. Now you're in sin. Now there's pride. Let me give you another example. I've got a married couple that I'm working with right now. They're going through a very hard season. And partially the husband, he's become very angry, belligerent, manipulative in the way that he talks to his wife and other people that are trying to help him. But if you know this guy's story, came from a very broken home, never dealt with it. And I think there's all these abandonment issues from stuff 20 plus years ago with his mom and dad. And so when he starts to fear, maybe things aren't going well with my wife, and he just feels a little bit abandoned, fear, doubt, he tries to come over the top to control, to manipulate, to get arrogant. Does that make sense? And you can think about how this might play out in your own life. Now look at what is going to happen in verse 10. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. So it's kind of like Saul waited till what he thought was the last possible minute. I, I can't wait anymore. i got to do it. i got to take matters into my own hands. And it's like as soon as he lights the fire, here comes the prophet. It never works out when you intentionally sin and take matters into your own hands that God didn't want you to. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself. Don't you look at that? I love that. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Matthew Henry said this, For lack of two or three hours of patience, Saul lost the kingdom. He would have had a dynasty, Two or three hours patience. Are there things in our life that for two or three hours of patience we're making sinfully stupid decisions that the consequences might be lifelong? Pride starts in doubt. Fear, anxiety, worry. But then it moves on to a demanding spirit. So flip down to chapter 14 and skip all the way down to verse 24. Chapter 14, verse 24. Another battle. 
And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. Now just pause there. Notice, it's not about fighting the Lord's enemies anymore. It's about fighting my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground, and when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard... His father charged the people with the oath, so he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. So they're in a battle. They can't find the enemy. They're trying to track him down. And Saul kind of gets panicked. Again, he gets worried. And part of what happens, guys, when you start to get panicked and worried and you start to act in pride, it's not just that you'll take matters into your own hands. You'll start to try to be demanding and controlling and manipulative of the people around you. I mean, that's what this guy in this marriage is doing right now to his wife and even to his kids. Saul does that to his whole army. A rash. I mean, think about how stupid that is in battle. Hey, you can't have anything to eat until we find and kill the enemy. Well, maybe if I got something to eat, I could run faster and farther and find the enemy better and be a better warrior. You make rash and stupid decisions. Do you remember the story of Lot? <laughs> when the angels are coming and saying... Essentially, this is the Olin translation. Hey, God is about to nuke this city. But He loves you. He's going to get you and your family out. But He's like, run to the hills. And Lot's like trying to micromanage the process. He's like, I don't really want to go to the hills. Uh, there's another little city over here. Can I go there? This is kind of a side note. But I've just seen this happen before. Where somebody gets caught in sin. Maybe like a bad marriage situation. And people start trying to go and say, hey man... You need to see a counselor. And they're trying to control the when, the where, that. Well, I don't know if I really need to see a counselor, you know. But if, I, if I'm going to see a counselor, maybe once a month. I don't have time for once a week. Oh, you don't want to be married. That basically is what you're saying. You, you become demanding. You become controlling. Now, uh, <laughs> there was a ministry leader that I knew that they had a policy and it, it was written down. This is not just like urban legend, right? Sometimes you probably hear preachers tell stories and you're like, did that really happen or is he just making that up? It's like, I saw the policy written down. It said, if you even have a discussion with anyone, including your spouse, about potentially taking another job, you must tell your supervisor within 24 hours. You realize how insane that is? You notice how arrogant and proud that is? I mean, just imagine some guy in ministry, but he's laying in bed with his wife at night, and they're just kind of brainstorming, daydreaming, like, do you want to do this the rest of your life? I'm not sure, but did you see that advertisement? Your friend's starting a new business. Wait, you know, and if you have that conversation, i got to call my boss the next day. <laughs> what was going on? Fear, worry, anxiety in the heart of the leader? What if all my staff start leaving? And I don't have enough troops in the field. It tends to make you do... Listen, guys, sin is not just immoral. Sin is not just evil. Sin is not just against God and offensive for all those reasons. It is all that. It's not less than that. It's just more. Sin is also stupid. It doesn't work. It backfires. I mean, just practically think about this example. With me. Do you think that would make people... Want to stay and work for you longer with a policy like that? 
Or would you be like, hey, go ahead and put me on the list because I'm looking for an out now once you make a policy like that. Right. You're in a struggling marriage, so you become more angry, you become more belligerent, you become more manipulative. Is that the way to win your wife back? Man, he's just yelling at me so much, I think maybe I will stay. (laughs) But we can understand, right? We can understand. Because in the heat of the moment, maybe your kid really crosses you. And if somebody could press pause and say, what is it that you really want from your kid right now? You might say, I really want to win his heart. I want him to love me. I want him to trust me. I want him to obey me. Well, then we find ourselves screaming at them because in the heat of the moment, it's like, I just want to fix the situation now. I don't want to wait. I don't want to be patient. I don't want to be a shepherding leader. I just want to be an effective leader. Skip down to verse 37. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all the leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. Another rash vow. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. They all liked Jonathan. Like at least this guy's sane. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan, my son, shall be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord, God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord, God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people Israel, give Thuman. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son, Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. They had this ancient way to hear from God that was almost like a black dice and a white dice, and they would throw out which one came out first. We don't know exactly how it worked. And it's like the white dice is yes, the black dice is no. Okay, Don't get caught up in that. But God speaks to say, Jonathan is the one that did something. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you've done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I'll die. Like, I'm not ashamed of what I did. He didn't know. He didn't do anything sinful. This is on Saul because Saul made a rash vow. And Saul said, God, do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. I mean, listen, pride, guys, makes you insane. He's about to execute his own son for breaking a vow that he didn't even know had been made. Total ignorance, total innocence. Verse 45. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Because he was a great warrior out there winning battles. Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. So the people rose up. They protected him. Okay? Um, where in your life do you see this desire sometimes to manipulate, to control And guys, part of where it starts in our heart is, it's the desire, because I see it in my own heart sometimes, to guarantee a certain outcome. It's not wrong to want a certain outcome. It's not wrong to pray for a certain outcome. It's not wrong to work for a certain outcome. It's not wrong to hope. But when you start to say, the burden is on my back to guarantee a certain outcome, you're trying to play the part of God. God is the only one that can guarantee a certain outcome. Our job is faithfulness in the process. God's job is the results. 
and we get that mixed up, you will find yourself dealing with fear and then dealing with pride. Another commentator said this, There is in all of us an inclination to resent being told what to do. Right? Don't you feel that? You ever been trying to find a parking space at a big game or a concert or something and you start to pull in and say, You can't park there. You can be the most godly, spirit-filled person in the world. Nobody likes that, right? But those in positions of authority and power are all the more reluctant to acknowledge anyone else's superior authority. The further you go in life, the more successful you are, the more influence you have, the more authority, the more power, the more position, the more acclaim and accolades you have, the harder and harder it gets for anybody to tell you what to do, including God. So the harder we have to work to humble ourselves before Him and His Word and His laws. We've heard the phrase, right? Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And that's not 100% true, but the point is, power's not bad, guys, but power's dangerous because it can go to our head. And there's a greater temptation to abuse the power. The further you go in life, Go the extra mile to invite people into your life to rebuke you. Make it easy for them to give you feedback. Tee it up for them. And when they do give you feedback, even if they don't perfectly deliver it, don't nitpick them about the 2% they got wrong in the delivery. Praise them for the 98% they got right. Even if they get 98% wrong, praise them for the 2% they got right. Does that make sense? Because you want to be the kind of person that says, I like feedback. I know I'm a sinner. I welcome constructive criticism. I needed I had a friend two weeks ago give me some constructive criticism. And even as he was doing it, I think some of what he said, I, he said, you said this, and I'm thinking, I don't think I said exactly that. But in general, what he said was right. And I literally almost, if, if I was in a Latin American culture, I'd have kissed the dude, all right? I was so excited. And he's like, I apologize. I was like, no, no, this is good. I love you more for this. I respect you more. For, I need this in my life. Invite it in. Welcome it in. Okay? Pride starts with doubt. It moves into demand. And then it goes to deception. You start deceiving others, but also yourself. Chapter 15, look in verse 1. Samuel said to Saul, let me just pause, guys. This is an important point. You realize Saul has sinned in two big ways already. But he's still king. God didn't remove him from position. And one of the ways that we lie to ourselves about our sinfulness sometimes is we do something sinful, maybe on Friday night, but then we're like, God's still blessing me on Saturday, so maybe He doesn't care that much. So we do something else sinful on Saturday night, we wake up, God's still blessing me on Sunday, so we think, must not be that mad about it. Romans 2, 4, God's kindness is meant to lead you where? To repentance, not to abuse grace. When you do something sinful and you wake up and you're like, God's still blessing me, you ought to be shocked. There ought to be a sense of thank you. And it ought to move you to repent more, not to continue in the sinful pattern, right? Because God was still using Saul. He was still king. There was a still sense of God using him. That's not a guarantee that you're not on the wrong path, guys. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to his words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted 
what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now listen, if you are like, man, when I read stuff like this in the Old Testament, when God says, go in and wipe out everybody, even the babies, and I don't understand it, Bradley is going to hang around tonight afterwards up here, and he will answer all your questions about that. All right? Let me just say this briefly. Some of these ancient nation states like the Amalekites were essentially like the Nazis. They, they, were, they were wicked beyond compare. And this was God's judgment on them. Okay? But don't get caught up in that. That's not the point of our story tonight. Skip down to verse 7. The point is God said, go in, kill everybody. Don't keep anything. This is judgment. Verse 7. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, the best of the sheep and the oxen, of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. So, he doesn't obey. Not full obedience. Verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret, which really means I grieve. I'm sad about. I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel... And behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. I'm not even making that a point in the talk, right? But we're talking about pride. You start setting up monuments to yourself, that's bad. That's pride, okay? Um, Verse 13, And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Now, what do you think is going on here with Saul? There's really only two options. Maybe it's like he really thinks, Everything's great. Happy to see Samuel. I did everything you wanted. Probably not. He's probably not that dumb. Probably his conscience is already bothering him. He knows he didn't do everything that God, through Samuel, told him to do. You ever been in a situation like this? Maybe your wife's out of town. You did something stupid. You don't want her to ask you about it when she gets home. It's like she gets home, you're like, hey, I cleaned the house. You know, I did the laundry. I swept. I took the kids. We ate healthy food, not McDonald's all weekend. Just trying to throw out all your good works. He's persevering in his pride. He's trying to convince himself, I'm not that bad. I had a good reason. It was worth it. Maybe I can convince the prophet. Maybe I can convince God. Verse 14, and Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Right? I mean, this is Adam in the garden all over again. It's not my fault. I know I'm the leader, but the people, the people I lead. That woman over there. Verse 16, And Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king of Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice, Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission of which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag the Amalekites. 
the king of Amalek. And I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction, but the people, again, the blame shifting, but the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Don't you like that? I did. We basically did everything. But the, and, the, and where we didn't obey, it was because we had a better idea. We are going to have a party for Yahweh. We were going to have like a big bonfire and sacrifice it all to Him. We had great intentions, great motives. Was that true? Was that not true? Don't know, don't care. When God speaks, our job is to do our best to obey Him in full. And that's not what He had done. Another commentator. Partial obedience is disobedience made to look acceptable. What's he doing here? Argumentation, deflection, rationalization. I'm going to make a comment here that most of you, if you're my age or older, you'll understand. And I promise you, I, I'm not making a political statement. Okay, it's just the best example I can think of. This is what I call Bill Clinton repentance. Right? You old enough to remember that one? I did not have sexual relationships with that woman. They're like, oh, we have tangible physical evidence here. It's like, okay, yes, I did. I, right? You caught me red-handed, so to speak. I can't deny it. Then I'll, I mean, I had a friend call me today about somebody in ministry, in sin, and he's explaining the situation. And, and here's my first question. Did he confess or did he get busted? Because that's a big deal. Right? That's a big difference. That's one of my big questions. If I'm out of town and my wife calls and says, hey, guess what one of your sons did? <laughs> one of my first questions, did he confess or did he get busted? Because confession is a lot better of, well, I got busted, now I have to admit it. Make sense? This is not confession. This is you got busted. That's what's happening to Saul. Look at verse 22. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has also rejected you from being king. What does that mean? When God tells you something clearly in His word and you just directly disobey it, that's what he really hates. It's like sorcery. It is like bowing down and worshiping a stone Buddha or something like that. Matthew Henry said, There's no such thing as a little sin because there's no such thing as a little God to sin against. Sin is not just breaking the rules, guys. It's a personal relationship that we sin against and we grieve the lover of our soul. Look at verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now this is the first sign of any genuine repentance we see in Saul. And what came right before it? When he said, you're not going to be king anymore. When he heard some of the consequences that were going to hurt him personally, that's when he said, okay, you're right. It's my fault. I take responsibility. Again, that's not good, guys. The real repentance in our heart ought to be, I love God and I've sinned against Him. I've grieved my Father's heart. Not just, I hate that I got caught and I hate the consequences that are coming. This is a good check for my own heart. Verse 25. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. 
And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the king of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Is this real repentance? You see what he wants? He's like, we're supposed to have a public worship service, right? We planned this big bonfire for Yahweh with all the stuff we got. I want you to go with me, Samuel, because I want to look like I'm still in right relationship with Yahweh. Everybody's expecting the prophet to walk hand in hand with the king, so to speak. Samuel's like, I'm not doing it. But he prevails on him. He finally goes, guys, this is a great picture of when we do get caught, we do get in trouble, and what we mostly care about is, I just don't want anybody to know. I just don't, Please don't tell anybody. Please don't let anybody find out. Nancy Leda Moss has a little pamphlet called The Heart God Revives. And she does a comparison between Saul and David. And there's about 35 different things, I think. A proud heart is like this. A humble heart is like this. And here was the best one. I remember my first time I heard this in high school. It hit me. It still hits me today. Proud people don't want anyone to know about their sin. Humble people don't care who knows about their sin, right? David wrote Psalm 51 3,000 years later for the world to see. Here's what I did. It's a huge sign of pride. When you care more about what people think about you than about your relationship with God. He's just trying to placate God. He doesn't really want to change. He acknowledges the wrongdoing. He doesn't really take responsibility. Saul and prideful leaders have an unrealistic, idealistic view of themselves. I did obey God. They lie about their holiness. They lie about righteousness. Let me just get real practical for a second. So many times when I see at least professing Christian leaders. And guys, when I say Christian leaders, I'm not talking just about pastors. I'm talking about if you're a Christian husband, you're a Christian leader. Right? If you have responsibility for anybody else in life, you're a Christian leader. And you're a Christian. But one of the two main ways, or two main ways that I see those guys get exposed when they're dealing with a lot of pride in their heart is they get caught in lies. Starts out with subtle lies, turns into big lies. Or it turns out they do start doing funny stuff with money. And this is what you see with Saul right here. He didn't want to burn everything up. He wanted to keep some of it for himself. And then he wanted to lie about it. They can't talk about the real deep heart issues. They just talk about their sin at surface levels. Let me just talk for a minute by, by way of application. Look, look at 1 Samuel chapter 15 and skip all the way down to verse 35. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king of Israel. You know what that first phrase is saying there? Samuel did not see Saul again. That means Saul never sought God again. Saul never tried to pray again. Saul never tried to go to worship again. From that day forward, Saul was never walking with God again, not even trying to. So let me just give three very practical examples. I've already given some. Let me give you some more because I want us to make this personal. I had a student in one of my discipleship groups year, uh, years ago at Samford, and one of the times we're meeting, we said, let's all talk about maybe a sin we're struggling with so we can pray for each other, hold each other accountable. And we got around to this guy, and, and he was not trying to be funny. 
he wasn't trying to be proud. He just said, guys, I'm just being honest. I, I can't think of anything that I'm struggling with right now. I, and I had a good enough relationship at this point to say, I said, how about pride? Maybe pride. You can't think of any other sin in your life. Maybe the sin of pride is looking at And he was like, I think you're probably right. I knew another guy. These were two campus outreach guys, and, and, and they had gotten in conflict with each other. And I had tried to be the mediator a couple of times. That didn't go very well. And, uh, but one guy, when I would try to talk to him about his part in the sin, what he would always do is, oh, it's not, it's not sin. It's just it's personality differences. Right? If you look at the, the Enneagram or the Myers-Briggs or whatever you want to look at, it's like we're just polar opposites. That's why we argue so much. It's, it's difference in leadership style. It's different in ministry strategy. He would never say, and I'm like, you know what? All three of those things might be some of it, but at least some of it's probably your sinful pride. He would never go there. And guys, here's what's sad. There's no promise in the Bible that if you're an ENFTP or whatever on the Myers-Briggs, that God will change your personality for you if you really want Him to. There are promises in the Bible that if you're a Christian and you're struggling with the sin of pride, that God will give you the means of grace to grow you up and humble you. So we, when you're in conflict with somebody else, you ought to look for what's my part in the sin because that's where you have real hope of change. The third guy that I've already mentioned a couple of times that had the policy that was written down you got to tell me if you talk to your wife about maybe taking a different job. I confronted him on that at one point. Here was his response, almost verbatim. He said, yeah, man, we should have never written that down. He didn't say, that was a bad policy. It was stupid. I should have never done that. I regret it. I'll check your right. He just said, he was sad he got caught. Should have never written it down. Same guy. At one point, myself, a couple of elders were meeting with him, kind of pleading with him to repent, to acknowledge some of this. And, and praise the Lord, it was like the Spirit was starting to work in his heart. And he pulled out a letter that he had written, and he read it. And listen, it was not great, right? It's, it, it, it's not like Psalm 51 part 2. But I've been walking with this guy for years. It was the closest he ever got to some real repentance. There was some real softness. There was some real brokenness. I mean, there were some tears in his eyes as he's reading. There was some real ownership. And I was like, man, and this was a guy that had hurt a lot of people. I said, brother, that, that is so beautiful. That seems so genuine. And I think if you'd be willing to share that letter with all the people that hurt you, they'd forgive you like that. This thing would be over. He just folded up, put it back in his pocket, said, I don't know if I'm ready and able to do that. He never did. He got fired a couple months later. It's like he could open the door for one or two or three people. He couldn't go further. Guys, have you thought about this? Just, just think about what we talked about. What was Saul's sin? He got impatient. You ever been impatient? Show hands on impatience. You ever made a rash vow? Like, I will do blank if blank. Anybody ever done anything like that? Okay, if I could put three hands up, right? He kind of lied. He, God told him to do this, and he only did 90% of it. Anybody ever done that one? Then, when somebody's confronted you on something, have you ever tried to do the spin job? Well, yes, technically, but not right. Okay? 
all the time, right? Don't raise your hands on this one. What are the sins that David is famous for? Adultery. Not just like the lustful look. He took another man's wife. And, and guys, this wasn't just common variety adultery, as bad as that is. This was an abuse of power. He's the king, and one of the secret servicemen's out in the field in battle. He's like, I'll take your wife while you're out serving me. And then he had the man murdered. My guess is none of us in this room have that trifecta in our life. But who comes off the pages of Scripture as a godly person and who comes off the pages of Scripture as an apostate? It's not about the size or the depth of your sin, guys. It's about the size and the depths of your repentance. When David got confronted by the prophet, you remember this? 2 Samuel chapter 12, I think it's verse 13. You can't even really do it justice in the English. In the Hebrew, it's only like two words. I mean, I got tired of reading chapter 15, all of Saul's explanations and excuses. You probably got tired of listening, right? But I did, and this is why the people and blah, 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 blah. It's like paragraphs. Back and forth conversation. When Nathan said, you're the man, David, David said, sin against God. He just, he owned it. He took responsibility. No excuses. No blame shifting. No rationalization. No pushback. If you ever get caught in some besetting sin, this is kind of a side note, but this might be a game changer for some of us. Conflict with somebody else or somebody's confronting you and you're wrestling. You feel, I mean, I feel like Saul. I'm, I, I'm trying not to rationalize. But I don't. One of the best things you can do is write down a confession. Because there's something concrete about that, right? You can't come back and spin it later. It's like, no, this is what you wrote down. Write it down and give it to the people you've offended. Now listen, is that always wise? No. Might there be some legal situation you're in where your lawyer said, that preacher's an idiot, don't do it? Probably. But normal life, if you're stuck in something, a way to take a practical step out, write down your confession and share it with the people close in your life. Almost done. Guys, here's my summary. Ultimately, David lived by faith and Saul lived by fear. Why? Because at the deepest heart level, David really got it. He really understood God loves me. God likes me. Do you remember in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned and they hear God coming after them, they run and hide behind the trees with their little fig leaf aprons. And why did they do that? Because they thought God was coming in judgment to bring wrath. But He wasn't. He was coming in mercy to bring kindness, to bring love, to bring forgiveness, to bring reconciliation. And all their excuses were just putting a hurdle in between them and a restoration of intimacy with the Father. It's not like God was running downstairs angry like, I can't believe it, I'm going to get you now. It was more like they were a runaway child and he was chasing them and pursuing them and trying to tackle them in grace. And guys, David got this in the basement of his soul. So when Nathan said, you're the man, David said, you're right, I am the man. 
broke because he understood the depths of God's love and God's mercy. Now, this is really interesting. Almost, almost done. When David said, sin against Yahweh. You know what Nathan said instantly? He said, the Lord's taking your sin away. And David had to just trust on faith. Okay, God's taking my sin away. But what David didn't know is, where did God take his sin? God took it to the son of David. Hanging on the cross. Put it on his back. And he died for it. He suffered hell for it. So that God could forgive David of his adultery, of his murder, of his abuse of power. And whatever you have dealt with or are dealing with, you confess to Christ in faith and repentance. And there's total mercy, total forgiveness. Your sin is taken away. Instantaneously. It's gone. Whether it's for the first time or the millionth time. That's how rich and wide and deep the love of Christ is for His people. So guys, the temptation will be to sin in pride and then to double down in pride and cover it up. When you get caught, don't do it. Be quick to confess. Be quick to repent. Because if you're in Christ, He's not an angry Father coming after you. He's a loving, kind, compassionate Father that's jealous to restore you to Himself. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Son of David, thank You for Your humility. Thank You that You left Your Father's throne above. Thank You that You hung on the cross for King David's sin and for my sin and for the sin of all Your people. Please let us not just believe it in our minds, but feel the reality of it in our hearts so that when we're tempted to sin, we won't do it. But when we do sin, we will repent quickly and not try to hide it or cover it up or fix it on our own. Give us great grace. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.